The Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Subscribe at YouTube, Apple Podcasts and all the major podcast channels. Visit our website at theradicalsecular.com for articles, insights, and our complete library of episodes. Support us on Patreon and follow us on social media. Hello and welcome back to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Christoph Defoe. I'm Sean Prophet. And I'm Joe Kipinti. Today's episode of the Radical Secular Podcast features The Too Late Show. And The Too Late Show is a periodic segment hosted by me, during which I have one-on-one conversations with folks I've selected on a wide variety of topics, the goal being to elevate non-traditional voices. Because despite our best efforts here at the Radical Secular, our show definitely tends to be a bit white, heteronormative, and (laughs) sausage-like. It's important that from time to time, we at least feature uh, some black folks, women, non-binary folks in an uninterrupted format. And most recently, in episode 59, I spoke to my friends Stephanie Holler and and Gwen Kruger about Stephanie's recent article published at PharmaLive.com, and it was related to the representation of transgender and gender nonconforming folks in the healthcare industry. You should go check out that episode if you haven't already. For today's Too Late segment, it will feature my conversation with my dear friend Stephanie Roth Goldberg about therapy of the mental health variety and how therapy can help us be better anti-racist citizens. And before that, Sean, Joe, and I will explain why Dave Chappelle is a fucking bigot. But first, I want to remind you that if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out our Patreon, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And we also publish new articles regularly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. All right, gentlemen, let's get into the t-shirt. Sean, what have you got today? Well, I am wearing my Nazi punks fuck off shirt because... (laughs) Always a good one. Always. This is... I mean... Fuck Nazis, first of all. But second of all, anybody who is transphobic is a fucking Nazi. All right. I mean, this is there's no excuse for it. And I'm tired of it. I'm tired of people's, you know, I'm sure you'll have uh, much more to say, but uh, I, I'm I'm livid about this, this, this situation. It's not a controversy. It's just fucking uh, pure on uh, Nazi bigotry. I hear you. Yeah, <laughs> I fucking hear you. Joe, go ahead. Well, this is what I'm wearing. See a shirt with a nice bright Godzilla on it and uh, Tokyo in the background. Ah, nice. <laughs> you know what? This, this, cool. this, this, I am with you, Sean. I am really livid about this too. And I have a Godzilla sized anger about it. And mm-hmm. it's, this is, this is meaningful and important. And we need to, we need to, we can't let this stuff stand. Yeah. I think that's oh, right. And I also I want to right. true too, because you know, I know he likes Godzilla. <laughs> that's great uh today i'm wearing my uh my ktm shirt which is not related to uh trans people or to dave Chappelle, obviously but um i have been out of the country i was out of the country for a couple weeks uh in south africa and i did a motorcycle trip and we're going to do a little bit of show about about that because um uh, South African politics is absolutely fascinating. Uh, the race dynamics there are absolutely fascinating. Um, and also the uh, the trip itself was absolutely fascinating. So we are going to do a little talk about that. But uh, just sort of uh, thinking back, this is my first show back and I still have uh, motorcycles on the mind. So <laughs> I was um, figured I would I would rock that rock that shirt today. Um, 
Now, uh, before we get into the body of the show, uh, Sean, if you uh, if you don't mind uh, giving us a little bit of a, 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 a summary or a little bit of a talk about um, your most recent post of the Radical Secular Journal. Yeah, thanks, Christoph. By the way, it's great to have you back. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Good to uh, be back. <laughs> my article is called Capitalism's Bait and Switch. And it's something I mean, this is not uh, news for us here. <laughs> you know, we talk about, <laughs> about the problems with capitalism all the time. But I have at the at the uh, as my main image for the article is this cartoon from 1882. And it's basically a a giant octopus kind of just strangling a bunch of a bunch of luggage. And this particular case was a, a, a strike, a railroad strike of, uh, you know, luggage workers. And um, but I go through here and I just discuss the difference between private property and personal property and how private property, which is basically big corporate conglomerates and, and you, know, uh, uh, you know, wealthy people who have taken over large sectors of the economy, you know, versus personal property, which is like your, your house, your car, your clothes, whatever. Um, and so there's this, there's this illusion, you know, when people talk about, you know, getting a handle on private property that, that you know, people aren't going to, it's going to be like communism. People aren't going to be able to own their <laughs> right. homes or their cars or anything else <laughs> like that. And that's not what we're talking about at all. We're talking about getting, uh, getting a handle around with, you know, in terms of democratic values around the largest conglomerates that are basically strangling large sectors of the economy, you know, and, and this is everything from, from private prisons to uh, school privatization uh, to large corporate landlords that are buying up homes right now in, in many cities and, and driving up housing prices. And so in this article, I go through several of these just outrageous economic lies. And, uh, and I talk about why they're wrong. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to take too much time in the show right now to, to go through, but I, th I think you should just go read this article because it kind of lays it all out. And it also has a brief discussion of modern monetary theory mm -hmm. and why that, and why that's important. Yeah, I, I loved the awesome. article. I thought awesome. it was uh, really well done. There's a lot of sophisticated stuff that you actually explained quite well and really elucidated, I thought. And uh, the stuff we're going to be talking about more in the show for sure, and we have already, but we really have to, we have to understand that what this is all about at, at a core level is the democratization of the workplace, the democratization mm. of the economy, because that, it's not democ democratic right now at all. That's the problem. And, and I'll, that's another way of thinking about this and getting away from all the dogma around this issue. Well, money is just power, okay? It's just concentrated power. Right. And so when money, when wealth is allowed to concentrate, when, when workers are, are not paid enough, then you know, it just creates this huge power imbalance. And that's a recipe for, for just continued corruption. And it just keeps getting worse because when you let money uh, have too much power, not only is it able to you know, just to, to repress the population, but it's also able to destroy the government's enforcement mechanism. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. That's exactly right. And it, become, and it becomes um, sort of uh, self-reinforcing that way, right? Uh, because basically, once that money sort of is infiltrated at that level, it, it's really hard to come back from that, like nearly impossible, frankly, it to is, come back yeah. from that. Um, and, and, and we see this, we see this in, in sort of the 
tin pot di- dictatorships all over the world and all this sort of thing. I mean, you see this in Russia, right? Russia is one of the most obvious examples of this. Um, so, um, well, thank you so much, Sean, for for explaining that. And uh, it's a really great article. Please, everybody, go read it. Uh, and now let's move on to talk about Dave Chappelle's transphobia. And I'm not even going to pretend that it's not transphobia because it is transphobia. Let's just call it what it is. And I'll, I'd like to frame the conversation with an excerpt from a uh, great Vox piece on the controversy. Quote, controversy. It's not a controversy. It's fucking transphobia. Quote, <laughs> for the past several years, comedian Dave Chappelle has been locked in a vicious cycle of anti-cancel culture stand-up comedy. Over six Netflix specials, Chappelle has lashed out at what he views as progressive attempts to cancel him for his incendiary comedy, all while mocking the queer and transgender communities and the Me Too movement. Chappelle's latest special, The Closer, is more openly transphobic than ever. Now, to be extremely clear, Dave Chappelle probably considers himself a trans ally. He has said repeatedly that he supports trans people. However, he seems to be at pains to use his offstage support for trans people to justify his overtly transphobic onstage comedy. And to be equally clear, his comedy has always been transphobic. Chappelle insists his jokes, in which he derisively referred to the LGBTQ community as the alphabet people, gross and confusing, among other things, have been construed by ang- have been misconstrued, I'm sorry, by angry progressives. Yet the closer's fixation on trans people drastically escalates the tone of his previous comedy, veering into outright anti-science arguments about gender while continuing his fixation on the anatomy of trans people. Many viewers were disturbed and upset to see Chappelle declare himself, quote, Team Turf in the new special, along with defending J.K. Rowling for identifying with turf ideology. Quote, they canceled J.K. Rowling, end quote, Chappelle opines, ignoring that Rowling is still a best-selling author with millions of fans. Gender is a fact seems to be Chappelle's way of implying that gender is binary and biologically determined. Science says otherwise. Chappelle also fails to mention in The Closer that Rowling has penned a long manifesto expressing the pernicious turf ideology that trans women might actually be male sexual predators in disguise, which is so fucking ridiculous. After downplaying the danger of Rowling's actions, Chappelle proceeds to downplay his own, even while luridly describing the invalidity of trans female anatomy and repeatedly expressing gender essentialist views. These are all arguably the kinds of transphobia that could escalate when a prominent comedian with a potential audience the size of Netflix, 180 million subscribers, treats trans identity like a quirky, made-up fantasy. In fact, study after study has shown a direct connection between the type of perceptions of gender identity Chappelle is performing and anti-trans violence. Even if you believe that Chappelle, the offstage human, is a decent and supportive trans ally, Chappelle, the onstage comic, is promoting bigotry and amplifying gender essentialism in a way that contributes to making trans people feel deeply unsafe. Additionally, despite Chappelle's reluctance to admit the overlap between black and trans interests, black trans women are the most susceptible group by orders of magnitude to the harmful impact of rhetoric like Chappelle's, end quote. Now, gentlemen, here is the prompt. Dave Chappelle is a bigot. Discuss. Okay, well... (laughs) I, it's, it's very hard for me to uh, maintain my composure when I'm talking about this because of how uh, just absolutely enraged I am about, about what he's doing and about 
the reaction of a lot of other people to it. And and what we've got here is it's a this is a conflict of interest, right? I mean, Dave Chappelle is a comedian and he wants to sell tickets. He wants to get paid to do these specials for Netflix and all of these things like that, right? So um, he knows he's offending people. He knows he's hurting people. And yet he's getting paid to do it. And this is the part that is just really um, like, why? Does he really believe this? Is it just that he's cynically courting this right-wing audience that's there? Um, if you look at, his, at the transcript, I have not watched the show, but I've read the entire transcript word for word from beginning to end. Um, I will not watch the show. And I've had a lot, there were a lot of people who online, as I was discussing this, were saying, well, how can you comment on it if you didn't see the nuance of his performance and, and what he was saying? No, fuck that, all right? This is a, this is a bigoted show. Um, most of it is actually whataboutism. He starts his, he starts his discussion yeah. of the trans community by comparing it to the black community and basically saying, you know, um, why are you getting all of this concern when, you know, we black people have been, you know, being hurt for, for centuries? I get it, okay, I understand. And I'm not black, and so I don't know how that feels. It must feel terrible. But why do you have to shit on another even less powerful group? What's the point of that? I mean, what do you guys think? It's hard to talk about. And I, 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 didn't, I didn't watch the show either for the same reason. I just don't think mm. it's ethical to do so for me. And it's also mm. disturbing. I did, I did read the transcript and um, I did watch a short bit of it because I felt like I, I just wanted to get a sense of his performance. Uh, and it's damaging. It, that's the, what the bottom line. It's damaging. This is a community that has just, just broken through that barrier in some places, not everywhere, but in some places where they're being starting to be accepted and it's becoming normative to some, to some level. And this is, this is a long history, right? Long story. All of the marginalized groups that we've ever had in our society have gone through this. And all of the same bigotry and hate, hatefulness and misunderstandings apply to every single one of those groups whether it's uh, black Americans or women or, you know, other minorities or, uh, you know, all every single group of people that has tried to establish a sense of dignity and worth. And that's what we're talking about. Dignity and worth has been attacked this way, has been called unnatural, has been has been joked upon every single one. This is just the latest one. And so why is this different? It's not, right? It's just because it's new. And it's more important than, than ever to, for us to stand with this community, with these people that are con consider themselves under siege by people like Dave Chappelle. We have to stand with our fellow human beings and, and support each other. And that's what I'm here to do. And I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to say I know what the situation is. I'm here to listen and support. Well said. Well said. Yeah, go, well, ahead, go ahead, John. We can't know what's in Dave Chappelle's heart. All right. And if you read the transcript, you'll find out that he was very charitable to uh, a, to a transgender comedian who he allowed mm -hmm. to open for him. And then she tragically committed suicide and he established a trust fund for her daughter and because her daughter was the most important person to her. And so it's like, OK, this shows a personal concern 
on a personal level, right? And I see this very similar as to the way that churches will support they will, they will be very charitable. They will uh, pass out food to the homeless. They will do all sorts of things, you know, in their local communities while at the same time uh, opposing policies that would help everyone. And so I see this is what's going on. So he can, he can assuage his guilt by helping this one transgender comic, okay, um, while creating a ramped up atmosphere of hatred and violence for all transgender human beings. So, yeah, a, a great point, Sean, a great point. And I, I have some thoughts on this. Um, and, and I want to start by saying that I am not against edgy jokes. Right. And uh, I, I'm, you know, uh, in fact, most of the kind of jokes that I like are, quote, edgy jokes. And I, and I, I think that even it can include good faith jokes about groups, immutable characteristics. I think there's a time and a place for that. I think who is telling the joke is key. I think the context is key. For example, I'm a huge Family Guy fan, right? Family Guy delves into this sort of thing all the time. Now, Chappelle's comedy such that it is, isn't that, right? It is obviously transphobia in sheep's clothing, as far as I'm concerned. And by the way, I also find in general, there was sort of relentless sanctimonious outrage from liberals to be exhausting. I think that it's often reactionary. I think it's often very undisciplined and emotionally driven. This actually goes to uh, how we should be doing, how, how we should be better on the left. And I, and so, and frankly, I think that kind of stuff is, is ends up being really distasteful and, and frankly, conservative. I mean, it's, we talk about the reactionary mind on this mm -hmm. show all the time. And, and, and that sort of like thoughtless reactionariness can be really counterproductive. Now, to be clear, I'm not placing the liberal outrage machine in the same bucket as a conservative outrage machine. They are similar in terms of the reactionariness, and I find that to be, again, unproductive. But they're obviously very, very different. Hate-fueled sort of outrage on one hand versus well-intentioned, if tragically unstrategic outrage on the other is not the same thing. Let's not pretend they are. Now, with those caveats in mind, I want to just sort of talk a little bit. I have some notes here about um, some of Chappelle's apologist arguments such that they are. I think most mm -hmm. people are sort of thinking um, or reacting right to Chappelle and they're not really thinking about it at all. And sort of for, and, and that drives me nuts for all the reasons that I've just that I just said. But um, so, look, the arguments boil down to and I've been thinking about this a lot, basically, since I got back, because I was out of the loop when this all started um, and I've been thinking a lot about it. And um, and so the arguments, I think, are this. Right. It's not transphobia. It's comedy. Right. And we, we, we sort of touched on this already, but it's a bad argument for a lot of reasons, but not the least of which is the racist joke problem, right? So many of the same apologists would recoil in horror if they saw a white person get on stage and just say overtly racist jokes about, let's say, black people's anatomy. Let's say you made fun of black people's full lips, right? Well, Their anatomy. Like, like, that's precisely what Chappelle does, though, right? He gets on stage, a non-LGBTQ person who is has a history of being hostile to LGBTQ people, gets on stage and tells anti-LGBT jokes. Like, how is that different than a white racist getting on stage and telling racist jokes, right? Well, it's not. And uh, I think we need to, you you brought up this example, and I'm sure you were referring to the Raiders coach who just uh, got fired or stepped down, who, uh, you know, described, I'm not even going to use the description because it is so distasteful that I, I would mm -hmm. not use that description of what he said. And by the right. way, I think that Family Guy has been a masterclass 
in handling all types of edgy comedy without That's punching right. down. And that is because exactly Seth, right. Seth MacFarlane is a good human being. He, he cares awesome about guy. people. He cares about people. Yes. And Dave Chappelle clearly does not care about trans people, regardless of how well he treated this one transgender comic that he referred to, because that, he is hurting people. That's exactly right, man. That's exactly right. And like, you know, look, you know, the other thing that I've said is like, right, people are like, well, because racist jokes used to be OK, right? They used to be funny. They're not. Now we're like most people are not cool with racist jokes. So like and and, and so people are, are, are these defenders saying that, like, look, well, you know, in 10 years, I will not be okay with 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 anti-trans jokes, right? Like you see the problem there? Yeah. Like it's a bad, it's a really bad argument. It just doesn't hold up. And another argument, and this is and this is another one that drives me fucking crazy. These all drive me fucking crazy, is if you don't like it, don't watch it. Right. right? And and this this and that boils down to that. And this overlooks the fact that rhetoric affects people even if they don't hear it. And I'm gonna keep coming right. back to racism Good because point. it's something that I have very specific experience with. Racist jokes hurt black people even if they're not heard by the black person. And in fact, right. black people usually don't hear racist jokes. White people tell racist jokes around white people, right? Like the, my individual offense at the joke or any ind person's individual offense at the joke is almost beside the point, right? Because racist jokes diminish the experience of marginalized groups in general. They give cover to racist jokes, that racist attitudes in society in general. And this stuff leads to real world acts of bigotry, as we talked about. And so, and by the way, this leads to trans people fucking dying. Killing themselves. Dying, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, being at alar alarming rates. So look, if apologists don't care about that, then that's on them. But they fucking own that, man. Don't pretend like there's no connection between this kind of rhetoric and violent outcomes. Am I right? Exactly. Absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. And, and we're not going to get pigeonholed into this sort of like dichotomous, oh, it's either, you know, social justice or it's comedy and having a good time. Right. right. And that's what, that's what you know, the, the supporters of this kind of, you know, uh, rhetoric always go to. Oh, you know, you mm -hmm. make it, they make it very, you know, one and zero and say it's one or the other. And it's not true at all. Like you said, Christoph, I mean, you, there's nothing wrong with edgy jokes. There's nothing wrong with comedy. It's great. I love, we all love that. But there is a tenor, a tone, and also an outcome. Like, what is the consequences? Yes. And when you have a community that has an incredibly high suicide rate and has incredibly high issue with, with all kinds of uh, struggles with, you know, becoming accepted right now, because this mm -hmm. is happening live. This is not, you know, um, then you... You stand up to that. You act accordingly. You act with dignity. You act with support and consideration. And if people do make those rude and crude jokes and 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 uh, spot off the ugly rhetoric, then you stand against it. And what's wrong with that, right? What, That's exactly right. And 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 of course they want to make it make the left the bad guys, right? They're the ones that are canceling, the ones that are doing all the wrong here. But the wrong is not being perpetrated by by people trying to protect the dignity and the safety of marginalized groups. It's not. Well, That's right. I want to point out something here, and that is that every time one of these uh, events happens where someone says something that is openly bigoted and then doubles down and then makes the cancel culture argument, okay, what that does is it requires everyone else to take a position. <laughs> and it, it sort of it sort of it sort of divides society into into two, right? And so we have um, there's a, there's an article here talking about John Stewart, 
who has now come out and has now defended Dave Chappelle over this. And it very, very much reminds me of the way that Christians defend uh, child abusers or mm. people within their community. Because listen to what uh, John Stewart said. John Stewart sa says, um, Dave Chappelle is one of my favorite people on the planet and he's just a good, decent, you know, if there's any miscommunication, I'm sure that I love that dude. Like as a person, he's warm and wise and all of those things. Okay. Ugh. Now, okay, fine. You may have a certain experience, John Stewart, of this person, but what he did and what he said does not conform to that experience. It's just like when someone, when a Christian says, oh, he's a good Christian man. Well, he wasn't when he was raping that child. Okay. Exactly. Absolutely right. That's, that's, that's a really great point. I, uh, can I just say Sean, one thing? Go for um, it, man. Here's the thing, okay? Cancel culture. So the trans community has been canceled for thousands of years, literally, mm. in the most extreme way possible in Western civilization. And they're trying to break through that canceling. A canceling that leads to death and oppression. And it's not, yes. it's not just losing your job. It's not it's losing your show, right? It's being... It's being uh, literally killed and tortured and denied human rights. That's the kind of canceling that is ha that this community has been under for all of human history, pretty much. Well, at least Western history. And Certainly. and now they're trying to break through from that. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to be like everyone else, have the same rights, have the same you know support from society, the same respect as everyone else. That's what's happening now. Right. That that's the the canceling is all about trying to uncancel that community. That's what's that's really, really what the issue is. Really well said. Really well said, man. Um, that 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 is such an important an important thing. And it's like if, if this is uh, people who are upset about affirmative action or people who are upset about uh, Black Lives Matter. And right. These are folks that don't even realize it's just it's just the privilege is so they're so steep in their privilege right they don't even realize that there's a whole there's groups of people who are living without that kind of freedom right. without that kind of safety and for trans people especially trans women in general i mean we know the that that the these people are attacked all the time and and one of the worst things that i that i've heard out there and and we've talked about it a little bit already is the argument and this is one of my one of my my third argument here that i want to talk about and that is Chappelle is actually an lgbtq ally right mm -hmm. um and yeah. that is one and there's various sort of versions of that argument i think that um the argument falls apart almost immediately as soon as Chappelle says I'm team turf, right? Yeah. And then, and then, and then the bad faith sort of defense of J.K. Rowling. I mean, the tur the turf is anti, right? Am I wrong? No, no. This 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 cuts across um, a lot of lines, and we even had Margaret Atwood, who wrote The Handmaid's Tale. Now mm -hmm. she's kind of made some noises about supporting J.K. Rowling and this gender essentialism. And we had one of our longtime listeners on the show who I got into a Twitter conversation with. And mm. this person was also uh, making these gender essentialist arguments. And it, it, it blew my mind. It really blew my mind because on everything else, okay, we've gone through these arguments, okay? Um, in the Constitution, blacks were considered three-fifths of a person, right? Um, Women weren't allowed to uh, get a credit card uh, without their husbands. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> people argued that somehow gay marriage would ruin straight marriage. 
right? Mm -hmm. And now uh, what's happening is, is that the TERFs are arguing somehow that the acceptance of trans women is going to ruin things for real women, right? Yeah. Real yeah. women, right? Now, so notice real how, how horrible, yes. horrible that is. You cannot make that argument so fucking awful. Without, without splitting off what it means to be a woman, right? And That's right. Uh, there's been discussions of, oh, you know, well, if you don't have a uterus, if you don't bleed, if you can't bear mm -hmm. children, it's like, well, lots of women can't bear children. Yeah. It doesn't, you Again, know, a and, bad and, argument. Yeah. And, and, and the, the fact of the matter is, is, is if you if you actually go in and look at <clears throat> what's going on here, it is much more complicated because the science is complicated. It is. It's not just about chromosomes. It's 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 it's, it's people have different hormone levels. People have different gene expression. There are there is a spectrum of gender that that uh, is in no way a strict binary. Not for any of us. And when you actually, no. think, when you think about somebody who is non-conforming and they just don't feel right, I, I kind of almost think it would be like having to live a lifetime of unrequited love, right? Where mm. you were constantly pining after a person who you could never have and you were in love with that person, but you could never, you could never have them. And I think that's what's going on for a lot of non-binary people and, and, and even, you know, closeted gay people, right? I mean, this, sure. this idea that yeah. you can't express yourself, your love, who you are in the world without shame. That's right. That's yeah. right. I, there's a there's a sort of a ethical or philosophical dimension to this, and that's that. What we want to do is really not be the arbiters of other people's lives when it comes to this stuff. It's up to them, and as long as that's as right. long as someone's lifestyle is not destructive to others, it's not if it's not violent and damaging to others. If it's it, you know they have people have a right to their lives. It's not my, it's not my choice. Like I, 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 I can't base it on what I think or what makes sense to me. I'm, I don't have that same lived experience. So what mm. the, the idea here philosophically and ethically is to give the, you know, give the, the choice to the person. Don't make the choice for them. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Again, it's about choices. And and it's about understanding the dignity of every human being, the right to express themselves the way they, he or she wants to. If you think about this, we're in a situation where people's slight discomfort, the slight discomfort of straight men, um, cis men, whatever, whoever the case may be, black men, it's mostly black men who are having this issue, right? It's very true. Um their level of discomfort getting weirded out by somebody's sexuality, getting weirded out by the fact that they might, they might see someone who is, who looks very feminine, feminine, but has a dick and be attracted to that person, then get grossed out because they think then that they think that that makes them gay. Right. These are mm -hmm. these, these weird little head games that people are playing with themselves. Um, and rather than deal with their own shit, they want to completely erase a whole nother category of human being. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Cancel them. Yeah. Right. Cancel them. Uh, uh, you know, I, one of my favorite arguments. Well, you know, I, when I say favorite, I put the put uh, air quotes around that. But, um, you know, right. He we know that uh, that 
Chappelle, like you said, he set up the, the trust fund. He had this 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 trans friend, and so somehow that means that he can't that he is can't be generally transphobic, right? This mm-hmm. is the I've got a black friend, so I can't be racist defense. Exactly, uh, but, <laughs> and it's complete bullshit. It's complete bullshit um, for on so many different levels. But even on the personal individual level, even setting aside this, the big societal thirty thousand foot view of how we act in the world and how that affects other people. Um, even on the personal level, there are plenty of people that I know personally, right, who were or are friends with me or have been for not now, but were friends with me and were also racist. I know that is true. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so speaking of which of white people, uh, one of the one of the uh, arguments I've heard, too, and I wonder how you guys think about this, is that Chappelle mostly makes fun of white people. Right. That's basically how he that's a large part of how he built his following back in the day. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a. And so therefore, right, and this is another version of this argument is he he attacks everyone equally. You probably hear that banging <laughs> yeah, around a lot. Yeah. So um, the problem with that is, is, is obvious is that white people rule the fucking world, right? So individuals offense at a, a white person's offense, individual's offense at a particular joke is entirely beside the point. It doesn't hurt white people as a class of person. And that's what we're talking right. about here, right, is that his rhetoric sort of adds to a to, to an already very loud anti-LGBTQ and particularly anti-trans uh, din that is going on in in the country. And, and I'll point out that the people who are defending this are almost always, um, these are not people who are on the receiving end of jokes like this, right? No. These are not people with trans family members or trans children. And, and look, I mean, I would ask them, what do you care about deeply, abortion? Right. What do you care about so much that if I made a joke about it, you or or better, not that I just made a joke about it, but I got on stage and trashed it to my 180 to 180 million people. Like there, there's a point at which, right, yeah. someone you're going to be offended by that. So at the end of the day, what we're talking about here is really a judgment call. Like what's off limits to you in terms of joking? I think that can be personal and that's fine. But what's not OK is demanding that trans people not be upset by the by the Chappelle special and that if they are, they should do or say nothing about it. Right. Like yeah. that is what we're asking. That's that erasure. Yeah, that we are that 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 they're asking us to engage in. And so I would ask people like that, you know, these defenders and some of them I know personally, by the way, like, do you know trans people? Mm-hmm. Ask yourself that. Do you are you yourself fully comfortable around trans people and talking to trans people and talking about trans uh, the entire experience of being trans? Um, most people aren't. And I'm not. And that's OK. But it's our job. Right. It's our job to get comfortable with it. That's what anti-racism is. That's what yeah. anti-bigotry is. Right. It's our affirmative job to be OK with that rather than than, than going out of our way to defend people who are expressing uh, these views, um, these sort of just expressing that discomfort. Right. In a way that you can laugh off as a joke. Right. Yeah. That is. And, and, and I think that is. Um, and again, I'll keep coming back to this, is that like you can't in one breath say no racist jokes and the next breath say trans jokes are OK. Are okay. No, you can't. And I want to bring this back once again to what I was saying before about how every time someone creates one of these controversies and then and then screams cancel culture. Right. Um, they are helping push the world to a meaner more fascist, mm-hmm. more exclusionary, more unequal place, right? And on the one hand, they're saying, 
well, my comedy, my entertainment is more important than these people's lives. Okay, number one. <laughs> That's a great point. Okay. Yeah. And, and number two, what they're also saying is that um, I'm not willing to get my shit together and deal with my own psychology. Right. That's I right. would rather laugh at these other people than deal with this 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 discomfort that I, of of my own unresolved psychology regarding regarding gender and sex and all of those things and my own uh, you know uh, whether it's drive for dominance or or uh, you, you know uh, not dealing with the issue of rape not dealing with the issue of mm. the, of of how uncomfortable women have been made to feel in our society all of these things that are that that have to do with the sort of unjust hierarchy that has persisted. And that many, many people want to continue. Matter of fact, they want to roll back the advances. We have had <laughs> all these advances. You know, right now, like no one is comfortable saying that a black person is three fifths of a human being. <laughs> At this point, most people are not comfortable, you know, saying anymore that like a, uh, you know, a gay married person is a threat to society. Like that's mm -hmm. this is all th these things are going away, but people want to bring them back. And yeah. every time we try to push the envelope more towards inclusion and equality, they push even harder. And this is straight out of the reactionary mind. So, so I mean, that's right. And you're well said. And there is a group actively right now trying to suppress the, this community. Like, they don't want it to exist. And they're going to <laughs> yeah. pass laws, if they can, to eradicate it. To literally. I mean, the, the, the evangelical Christians believe this is immoral. It's a sin against God. And they're yeah. acting to try to suppress this expression of humanity, right? So it's not it's not theoretical, right? And no. it's dangerous. And you know, think about it this way from a very personal perspective. You know, let's say I'm a dad and I have a transcend transgender child and I'm struggling with it, and it's really I'm I'm trying to really connect with this with my child and understand the situation. And I listen to Jay Chappelle, and all of a sudden, yeah, oh shit, yeah, what the, what the hell was I thinking? You know, you know, he needs to stop doing this. I'm going to I'm going to try to stop him and all this. Like it, it affects people at a very personal level. It's a very psychological, and it, it really taps into what we're going to be you know discussing later uh, in the in the show as well. I can tell you yeah. right now that there are tens or hundreds of thousands of people around the country right now that are being pushed more over into the column of saying, you know, my child's a freak by Definitely. this comedy, by this kind of comedy, right? And feeling okay, feeling justified with their friends and just in their social circles of saying, yeah, you know, like I can't, you know, I, I have to, dis I'm going to disown this child because that's your choice as a parent, right? If, you're, yeah. if your child is gay or trans or whatever, whatever they end up being, you know, whatever their humanity however their humanity is expressed as they grow up you have a choice you can you can be accepting of that and you can maintain a relationship with your child or you can traumatize that child and cut yourself off from them and that is the yeah. that is the it's crushing it's crushing that people are being pushed into yeah by this comment yeah it's so true, guys. So true. And I, I, I we could go on uh, huh. with this for a long yeah. time, but uh, but let, let's let's move on now to the uh, too late show segment, um, during which I will be talking to I spoke to that is uh, Stephanie Roth Goldberg. She has been a guest on the Radical Sector podcast before, and I'm pleased to welcome her to the Too Late Show as my second guest. Ms. Roth Goldberg is an interactive psychodynamic psychotherapist and the founder of Intuitive Psychotherapy Center in New York City. Her clinical areas of expertise include treating eating disorders and disordered eating from a health at every size paradigm. 
Stephanie is a certified intuitive eating counselor and believes in the intuitive eating anti-diet model. Stephanie is also an accomplished triathlete, and her special interests include working with athletes suffering from body and eating disturbances, as well as performance anxiety. Stephanie is also a mother to her two children, a partner to her husband, and one of my closest friends, and just an all-around cool-ass person. So without further ado, The Too Late Show and The Radical Secular present Stephanie Roth Goldberg. Hello and welcome back to the Too Late Show segment on the Radical Secular Podcast. My name is Christoph Defoe and I'm here to tell you unequivocally that it's too fucking late. Today, my friend Stephanie has joined me for a discussion about therapy and how it interacts with social justice. Stephanie, I'm glad to have you back on the show. I know you're a super busy person, so thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me. For sure, for sure. Now, before we get into the meat and potatoes of this thing, tell me, you know, how the hell are you? What have you been up to? Are you training for anything? How is, you know, what's going on with the practice? What's up? I am good. I am busy. I don't know if that ever stops with <laughs> kids. I don't know. Or in a job. Um, I'm good. You know, we moved to Montclair and I love it, um, which was a surprise because I didn't really want to leave the city, but I really love Montclair. Um, and I'm ambivalently not training for something. I'm training as if I was going to run a marathon, but I haven't actually registered for any marathons because I'm, <laughs> I fear they're going to get canceled. One of like the New Jersey marathon just got canceled. So I'm probably going to shoot myself in the foot because I'm spending a lot of time running and I'm not sure what the outcome is. Although I've met a some really great uh, folks in town that I've been running with. And so that's been a really great addition to my socializing and my transition to a new place. So um, I don't know what I'm training for, but something maybe. (laughs) (laughs) No, fair enough. Fair enough. And I think it's interesting too, right? So for those folks out there that don't know, I have a lot of experience in Montclair. I Montclair, New Jersey is like just an amazing suburb of New York. Really, if you're going to move to the suburbs, right, like this is the suburb you want to move to. It's like progressive. It's gorgeous. It's got a good school system, um, but it's also very diverse, which is like for certainly for that level of affluence, um, of relative affluence. And I think it's I think and maybe you, you would know this better than me, Stephanie, but I think there's sort of a range, right? Like it's also not just ethnically diverse, which I think is important, but I think it's also like income diversity, right? So you have like ultra rich people all the way down to folks, you know, sort of living low income housing or whatever else. You really have a full range. Is that that accurate? Do you think? It is accurate. It's funny from my house, um, which is in a nice section, I write our backyard backs onto these apartments, half of which are low income. Um, which is sort of the cool thing. Right. But Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people would say that Montclair is turning because the taxes are really high here. So the income diversity, I believe is shrinking. I don't Mm. know factually like any statistics, but I sort of hear that a lot. And I could imagine that because the taxes are sort of rough, but the other cool thing about Montclair and it's written up sort of nationally for this is the way their school system is, it's a magnet system. So there's, I think, five elementary schools in town and each one in theory, and I believe in practice, has the same amount of 
um, racially diverse kids and kids from different neighborhoods. So I can go next door to someone and our kids might never go to school together. If we're both white, we live in this, you know, section of town, likely our kids would not get zoned to the same school for purposes of diversity, which I think is cool. I think that's really cool. And I think there'd be a lot of people who have a lot of problems with that. But I think I am very comfortable with the, with, um, like sort of purposefully creating diverse environments, right? So schools have been doing this forever. Law schools have been doing this forever. They've, they faced a lot of flack and a lot of, um, lawsuits, frankly, as a result, but they've largely been, uh, the, the lawsuits have largely failed. And that is they create, they create, create a, without quotas, so to speak, you know, there's not like, literally, we need to have this many white people and this many black people, but like, still they have like, the goal is to build a diverse student body. That's sort of representative of, of the community and of the nation. And that is super, super important. I mean, uh, ironically, one of the things that I found really interesting about when I was in law school to that extent was that I met a lot of people from the South because, you know, I'm from New York area. And when you're from the New York area, as you know, Stephanie, there's really no reason to ever leave it. Right. Like, right. so like, you, like, I don't want to move to Ohio. Right. Like, right. I mean, no offense <laughs> to people who live in Ohio, if you're listening, I mean, I'm sure Ohio is great, but like, I mean, when you live next to like New York city is right there, there's a lot of good reasons. Plus all my family's here. There's a lot of good reasons to stay here. And so certainly as a black person and as a progressive, there's a lot, there's very few reasons to go to the South. Um, So meeting like a progressive Southerner at law school was just like, right. I was just like, what the fuck? So anyway, the point is like that kind of diversity matters too. Right. So even though I'm a diverse candidate, right. I going into that environment and I'm, and I'm sort of experiencing something that I never would have experienced in my normal daily day life route around here in New Jersey and Jersey city, certainly. And I think that can be really, really useful. Totally. You know, um, one other thing before we move on is that like, talk to me. So I want to make an analogy here. So I moved up to Jersey city Heights from downtown Jersey city and my wife and I, um, bought this house that I'm sitting in right now about six years ago. And it was a huge, like shock. I had a lot of resistance to moving from two up to the Heights, which is a more suburban area of Jersey city than when I was living downtown, which is like the sort of hub. It's cool. There's restaurants and, and everything's walkable, right? It's like, it's where if you're moving from the five boroughs of New York, like that's where you move, right? You move to like downtown Jersey city. Cause it's super. So I had like a real struggle with that because it felt like it was some, some ways a blow to my status, my ego Mm -hmm. in some way. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I know you and I have talked about this offline, but you know, but, and it sounds like you're, you are coming to terms with this, but New York has that effect in spades, right? Like leaving New York is tough because it is an identity. Being a New Yorker is very much an identity. Am I right? A hundred percent. Yeah. I think (laughs) this is, you know, speaking of being sort of like an elitist New York, (laughs) Northeastern Mm -hmm. person. Um, I will say Montclair was one of the only towns I felt like I could have come out of my mouth, like right, confidently and not right. be like, oh no, I moved to the suburbs, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. Montclair is just like a cool place. And I think it everyone is. knows it's a cool place. Right, and, right, right. Um, so, <laughs> so I chose that. Um, it is it's, it's shock, a beautiful though. town. It's a beautiful house you live in, by the way. Yeah. It's, thank you. Uh, 
but it is a shock to your system to still, like we have groundhogs right now. Like if I look at our grass, I don't know. <laughs> and like the deer here are nuts. They like are not afraid. You'd think it was someone's dog. Like it's, um, and I run really early in the morning. And so I'm always terrified to leave my front door and like, what animal am I going to have a face off with before I can make it to like the street? Um, I actually just was uh, calling some electricians to get some uh, automatic lights put in because it's getting dark in the morning. And I'm actually afraid. I don't know. Uh, so those <laughs> things are shocking to my system. I'll um, bet. I'll bet. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so look, uh, let's, let, let's just get into the main subject of our conversation now, uh, which is therapy, um, your area of expertise. Certainly you have, uh, a ton of both experience and education in this area. And I really want to talk about therapy from different, from various perspectives, but from the first, in the first instance, I'd like for you, if possible to just, to define therapy for the audience, including what kinds of therapy you practice. And I think most importantly, because this is something that I know that is a hobby horse of yours and it annoys me too, the distinction between genuine therapy and therapeutic activities. So people like to say, oh, that's my therapy, but no, it's not, right? Right, right, right. Um, and or people like to say things like, my hairdresser is like going to therapy. Uh -huh. Yeah, right, 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 right. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Which to every hairdresser's credit, I do believe they get a lot of uh, people sort of talking to them about things they likely don't even want to be talking about. But I'll bet, it, I'll bet. That's like part is, of that's like a job job hazard is like listening to people's like really random ass stories, you know? Totally, but it's still <laughs> definitively not therapy. Um, I mean, I, I think therapy has different modalities, right? Therapy is definitely a process between a licensed professional and either an individual or a group um, that is something that people have mutually agreed upon. It is usually a paid service, even if your insurance is paying for it. The licensed professional, that's their career. They've studied that. They are bound to HIPAA laws um, mm. as well as ethics, uh, in each individual sort of um, space, psychologist ethics are different than the ones of clinical social workers. And I believe that's different than uh, like a licensed mental health counselor. But we are all bound by some ethics. We carry malpractice insurance. Um, and I think why I say that is because, you know, coaching is a very popular uh, thing. Yes, yes, um, yes. And coaches really aren't therapists. They do, they are not bound by HIPAA. They are not bound by any ethics. Um, they're not recognized in by any state or national laws. Um, so people can really do whatever they want and take advantage of you. Um, and, or tell you what to do in a way that they're not really, I, I suppose maybe they feel qualified for there's some certifications, but they're, I don't know. Um, so Yes. So therapy is a mutually agreed upon process um, between generally between two people, even if you're agreeing to be in group therapy and then mm -hmm. the group at large has different um, agreements. And as you alluded to, there's so many different types of therapy. I think there's this sort of caricature of what everyone thinks of someone sitting in a chair, someone sitting across the room from them and just general talk therapy. Uh, and within that, of course, there's different modalities. I spent four years training in psychoanalysis, which is one modality. I 
also years and years ago, I don't practice this, but I was trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, There's many therapies now. There's something called EMDR, which is uh, specific for trauma. Um, Something I'm quite interested in is a newer modality, somatic experiencing, which is also for trauma and really highlights being in one's body and connecting um, somatically to your experiences and then making those sort of felt experiences that, um, so, and then there's, there is general sort of psychodynamic talk therapy. And within that, there's so many different frameworks. Um, I don't know if that's the best definition, but that is, I think that's really, really useful is what that is. And I, I'm interested to know, right, because I have been in therapy. I'm in therapy now. Um, I don't go to th- I only really go like maybe once uh, a month at this point. I've been in therapy consistently probably for the last 15 years. Um, and and it's interesting how the role of my therapist has changed. I've been, have been through many, many therapists. Uh, but in the beginning, I was I just had no idea what I was talking about. I had a lot of ideas about myself. Um, because I'm an introspective guy by nature, but it doesn't mean that I knew what I was talking about to, to your point, right? Like I'm not a trained therapist. Um, so, uh, and I, and I, I could identify traumatic or potentially traumatic incidents in my life, but again, not being able to connect those things to my behaviors today. What I, um, and so I have a lot of experience with therapy, but still that definition I think is very useful for me, even with all that experience. I want to know though, what distinguishes psychotherapy from um, cognitive behavioral therapy in layman's terms, layperson's terms? So cognitive behavioral therapy in its truest form is a set guide. So let's pretend we're saying sleep. Okay. You're going to go to someone who specializes in CBT and they're going to say, we have this six week um, a protocol. Mm-hmm. And each week we're going to do these things and then we're going to give you homework and we're going to connect um, your thoughts, behaviors, and emotions in a way that we get you to stop the behavior. So uh-huh. if you were having insomnia, um, which actually CBT can be quite useful for, it would be like, okay, let's track how much sleep you got. Bring me this graph the next week. How much TV did you watch before? What was your nighttime routine? Let's change the behavior. Um, insurance loves CBT because you can track. Right, um, right. And so- It's like concrete kind of, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons CBT is so wildly popular is because insurance will pay a premium for people because it's a short-term therapy. In its essence, CBT (laughs) is a short-term therapy. I'm laughing because I'm fond of saying capitalism ruins everything. Yes. Um, And and like the end because – and this is what I mean when I say that, right? I'm sorry. Capitalism poisons everything, right? And I'm not an anti-markets guy. Like I'm not a socialist, right? I'm not a communist. I think markets are very, very useful for everyone out there, for everyone. Don't at me, you know? I'm – I whatever. I'm I'm into that. But I – but – you, but once you inject the profit motive into everything, it just skews the whole thing, right? Now it's not about what's best for the client. It's what's best for the insurance company, right? That's that. Absolutely. You know, and I know you make your money from insurance. We, I'm glad to have insurance. I'm not saying we shouldn't have, we should, but still it's worth pointing that out, I think. So actually, interestingly enough, I think a huge problem with the therapy field is I don't actually make my money from insurance. Oh, that's right. I, that's right. You usually do pay for, you do, you do fee for service stuff. I do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, 
which is a problem in itself. I mean, that's a whole probably episode, but it's impossible. <laughs> in some ways, it's impossible to work with insurance companies because there's so much paperwork involved. The rate right. is really low. And whenever you contract with an insurance company, so I was on an insurance panel for a while and I contracted with them in 2006. And I spent years trying to get them to give me even $5 more per session. Like they wow. just keep you at the same rate, even though your rent goes up every year. Right. Whatever else. So um, I don't make my money from insurance, although you could make a case in a backwards way. I do because most <laughs> people get reimbursed, but um, no, it's part of the, I think it's a big problem within the field of therapy. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I cut you off. You were talking about psychotherapy because I want to know what psychotherapy is. <laughs> So interestingly enough, one of the other things is because CBD is, CBT is so prevalent, people come into therapy often looking for a roadmap, looking for uh -huh. how long is this going to take? Mm -hmm. When am I going to feel better? And true psychotherapy in the way that it is designed cannot answer that question because it's work that two people are doing. Um, there is no roadmap in it, in its essence. Also, the idea is we can peel layers, right? Like an onion, and then mm. we can figure out what's going on in your, and I'm a psychoanalyst, right? So the unconscious, I'm very um, interested in. So there's no way for me to tell someone how long it's going to take for them to whatever it is they're looking to do. Um, and that's another reason CBT is very popular because in our culture, right? We all want quick yeah. response. We yeah. want very concrete ideas. Um, and so, but psychotherapy, it's not outlined that way. And in fact, I have a good friend who does this. He's um, a psychiatrist, but who practices psychotherapy, but he gives a waiver, if you will, to his clients, letting them know that therapy doesn't always feel good, that it's a long process. Right. And sometimes you're going to leave feeling worse. Um, right. And the fact that he's an MD makes sense, right? Cause he's sort of practicing from that medical model of here's the risks, but I always thought it was really smart. That, and so I try and tell people that in the beginning too, like, don't come here and expect to leave happy every time we're going to uncover right. some painful things. And ultimately they'll help you feel better, but it's not going to happen each week. Yeah. I want to ask you now. Uh, and this is something that I have struggled with because I used to be the kind of guy who would say every, every single person should be in therapy always, all the time, go to therapy. Yes, you're crazy. If you don't, you just don't know yourself and you're just blundering through your life. Um, but do you take that position? Do you think, and, and I, I have perhaps uh, stepped back a little from that position. Do you think that therapy is good for everyone? And um, is it, are there people for whom it's not useful and for people that is actively harmful? Or is it just, do you think it's good for everybody? I think that's loaded, right? So I think yeah. at a basic, my answer is, and this is sort of cliche, right? Of course, I think therapy is good for everyone. <laughs> um, but I think there are things that are actively harmful and that do happen to people in therapy because therapists are human. Um, right. So I think finding a person with whom you connect who understands whatever it is you are coming to therapy about mm. is really important. So, um, <clears throat> you know, my specialties with eating disorders and I work with a number of folks in larger bodies and the amount of um, 
times that clients have told me that previous therapists have told them they would just be happier if they lost weight. Wow. Um, I hear that a lot. Right. And that's harmful. And I think that people who are working with folks who either they don't align um, politically and then, but they can't see that enough to get out of their own way. Um, Or I'm sure this happens all the time, white people working with people of color who really sort of probably dismiss or invalidate a lot of their felt experience. Um, So I also think therapy can be harmful if not done properly and if people don't recognize their own limitations. That makes a lot of sense. You know, so uh, just to give an example of that. So I was working with a therapist in 2016 uh, around the Trump, you know, election in 15 and 16 in the Trump election. It felt like a huge betrayal that white America did this to me, right? Like that's what it felt like. And that wasn't, it's obviously not really what it was, was, but that's what it felt like. And anyway, so I hear him talking to my therapist about it. And he said to me, he's like, well, look, we survived Nixon, we'll survive this. And I was like, oh my God, that is not at all what I wanted to hear. Like, so you're telling me like, whatever, dude, it's not a big deal. Kid, it's fine. You'll get through it. And I was like, that is not what I wanted for my therapist. And that was damaging. And then I moved on to another therapist. The therapist, a style that I'd never had before, which is a younger guy, a younger male. Um, I think, I don't know how old he is, but I think he's younger than me. And um, that is definitely a first for me. And I usually have older women. That is that is like my go-to therapy, therapy like module or like a sort of paradigm. Anyway, but he gets it, you know, anti-racism, like these terms and concepts that are like have become part of who I am and how I'm how I've dealt with the Trump thing. And I guess what I'm getting at is that it's been so important to have somebody who gets it right, who I feel like I jive with. And funny enough, that was my next question is how important do you think that is? Because I've suggested therapy to people and people are like, yeah, well, you know, I don't like that therapist, that therapist, you know, so I'm going to quit. And then, uh, and that becomes an excuse a lot, I think. What do you think about that? I get really frustrated about that because I've had that in my personal life a lot. Like people will say, oh, I was, I went to therapy once and it was terrible. I'm like, okay, but that's like saying you've been on one date and then you never <laughs> wanted to date again. Right, right, right. You know, or you made one friend and they were crappy and then you never made another friend again. Like in, in that way, I've gone to plenty of doctors that I don't like. And then the next time I need a checkup or whatever, I switch. I think therapists in some way are treated so differently than other Mm -hmm. um, healthcare professionals in that, like people do expect, you know, you're going to be good. And then if not, this is totally a waste of my time. Whereas I'm like, I was having foot pain and I went to a doctor and he was a jerk. I would find a different doctor because I'd recognize (laughs) like my foot still hurts. Right. Um, Right. right. And but people devalue mental health all the time. Right. But I do also think a problem in in the therapeutic field. And I talk about this a lot because I'm always engaged in, I don't know, group supervision and learning Mm -hmm. um, is that therapists themselves don't recognize this isn't a client I should work with. Like, even if I can help someone, I generally know there is someone who can help with certain populations, right? There's people who likely can help them more. Um, And I think that also a problem in the field and I've 
is that many therapists don't recognize, like we can't actually help everyone. We're not trained, right. we're not specialists in every area. I don't, I think lived experience for a lot of populations is very valuable. So sure. um, I don't know. I think that's also part of the, like if someone said, I don't like my therapist, I'll say, oh, what are you looking for? Do, why don't you find someone who, I don't know, can identify as this or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, it. I agree that it's sort of a complicated question, right? Because, I mean, I, I guess the main line, the break. I think what you said, the devaluing of mental health in our culture is 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 huge, and um, and and by the way, the elevating and the obsession with sort of like toughing it out, right? I mean, like, at, yes. like you know what I'm saying? Like, at, like, so, and, and there's, and there's different sort of, I think, iterations of this on sort of perhaps the lower of the income scale. And certainly in black communities, there is a stigma against going to end mental health for any reason, right? So there is that element of it. And then in sort of the more of the upper echelon, so to speak, um, folks that say work at uh, at big banks or at big law firms, right? And part of it is absorbing abuse. Like, and, and I know the experience very personally, right? Part of the badge of honor is that I don't sleep enough. I eat shitty food. You know, I'm tough. You know, I, I don't, I, I can psychologically take a partner yelling at me and go back to work. And so anyway, all this idea of like, you know, devaluing what the individual, like just being okay, being happy. And I think that, and there is like, you know, the sweater song, like you pull that thread of therapy and people are afraid to pull that thread because it really can theoretically un unweave an entire sweater of unhealthy perspectives on myself and on the world that have been my clothing to make an analogy, to make an analogy my right. entire life. And now I'm going to pull that. And I think like, it's really easy to be like, well, that therapy didn't, therapist didn't work. So thank God I don't want to pull that fucking string. Right. Well, I think what you're saying in some ways is the therapy did work and people weren't willing to do the work, so to speak. Right, 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 it's right, like, right. It's, and again, like another analogy is if I went to a physical therapist and I was having shoulder pain and they gave me a bunch of exercises and I refused to do them and then said the physical therapist wasn't good, that would not be true. <laughs> right, right, um, right. But and I also think that's something that people don't talk about a lot is that part of going to therapy is the client or the patient or whatever term you want to use mm -hmm. is doing work, right? Like right. is coming in and sort of being vulnerable or talking about the hesitation of being vulnerable or telling stories that are difficult and expressing emotions that are otherwise difficult. But then also in between sessions, using times of reflection. And sure. that's when actually doing things that are therapeutic can be useful. Right, but, um, right, right. But it's, I also think that's the other, like people expect to go to therapy 45 minutes a week and leave and feel better. Whereas reflection and introspection is a really important part of the healing process that cannot happen in your one time a week, 45 minute session. Sure, sure. And that's actually a great segue to our last uh, topic for today. Um, and because I, we're talking about self-reflection, and, and I want to talk about and ask you, I guess, and this is a hard question. Uh, so how, in your view, does self-understanding and, um, you know, uh, how does that help through therapy and, and, and other means, like, do you think that that can help an individual become a better anti-racist citizen? I want to sort of try to connect this therapy issue to um, anti-racism. Do you have any ideas about that? I do. So 
I'm in, I'm by no means an expert in anti-racism. Um, I think by its nature, no one is supposed to be. Sure, but I, sure. I, 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 I think that's probably um, right. I think that's probably yeah. right. But you take it um, seriously though. But I do. And I, and I try and do a lot of learning. And I think one of the things, as I understand it, and I, as I practice it about being an anti-racist is that everyone has racist beliefs and ideas and the way to become an anti-racist is to admit them, to examine them, mm -hmm. to uncover them um, and work through them, right? And I think therapy is supposed to be one of, if not the safest spaces for someone to go to, to feel completely free to express whatever it is they're thinking. And so in its essence, it would be an excellent tool for someone trying to become an anti-racist because you can admit, oh, I saw this whatever thing and this was my thought. Right. Maybe that's not actually true or I feel bad having this thought. I was working with someone um, who was really struggling with they, them pronouns. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a case of, you know, sort of a therapist really having to get their own judgments out of the room because mm. I could have certainly shamed them and directed them to some resources to read about it, which is in truth what I would have done in my personal life, whether sure. that's the right thing to do or not. <laughs> uh, maybe I wouldn't have wanted to do that, but I could see my, I could feel my reaction. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, um, for sure. But as a therapist, we really worked through what was blocking them, what it is that they felt was difficult about learning something new about viewing people differently. Um, and when you can work with someone and get them to uncover their own bias like that, I think it's so much more helpful for them to work through that and move through the world and educate themselves. And hopefully, at least in my opinion, although this would be bias in itself, right? Like hopefully change their minds about whatever beliefs they're holding that are racist or otherwise problematic. Sure. Um, but again, I think that's where the fitness of a therapist and client come into play because you really have to feel comfortable enough with someone and safe enough with someone to say these things out loud that in any other place, really, you are, if, I mean, you shouldn't say out loud, you're taught not to say out loud or sure. appropriate or, um, so I think it can be a really useful tool to being an anti-racist. Yeah, that I agree with all of that. Um, you know, and I want to clarify for the audience and for you that when I say anti-racist, I really should say anti-bigotry, right? Because this this applies equally to me as I'm I'm, a, I'm black, obviously, but um, this applies to me equally as a man, um, as a cisgender um, hetero heteronormative dude. Right. Like with all the privileges that come along with that. Um, and in many ways, being male um, is supersedes being black. There are millions of ways in terms of so in terms of hierarchy, in terms of social hierarchy, in many ways. That's true. Certainly, if you leave the United States, that's certainly true. I mean, Africa. Whoa. Whoa. Right. <laughs> that is all male hierarchy and every and mostly and, and, and any Muslim run country. Yes. I mean, come on. It's like comical. Pa patriarchy is definitely the 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 primary issue here. And I benefit from that. Right. So. Th so with that having been said, um, 
I think that for me, and 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 one of the things that one of the the frontiers that for me really is uh, stuff around um, the challenges around um, LGBTQIA issues. So getting used to the they them pronouns, getting used to um, you know uh, just not that I have a problem with it. Obviously, clearly not. But it's just a question of like it, I think that it's my responsibility to make people feel comfortable, right? It's not yes. just, it's just not, and that's what anti-racism is, right? It's not okay. It's not just that I'm not saying bigoted things or I don't believe bigoted things. It's that I'm actively elevating people that the voices, and I'm actively working to make people feel more comfortable. And I think what's critical, critical in that is understanding how my, my behavior impacts other people, you know, like, Yes. That, is, that is so important. And I don't see how that's possible without robust self-reflection. And I don't think you can do robust self-reflection on your own. I mean, some people I can. Some people can, I guess. But that is so fucking rare. And, and I'll tell you what. I mean, and uh, you know, part of why I'm doing this segment separately is because I think it's – and I really want to try to elevate – uh, women, women's voices. I want to try and elevate black voices. I want to try and elevate um, uh, uh, non non-binary voices, etc. And um, because you know, and and so if I offend white men, I'm sorry. But what white dudes are just so used to just saying whatever they want, like yeah. and doing whatever they want. I mean, it, it, and even the most progressive white guys that I know, right? Like, and that I know, not even that I know that I see personally, because I know a lot of really, really great progressive white guys. Like the guys that I work with on the show are like outstanding, right? But still, still it is rem like, it is, it, it is easy to see how people are, white guys are just not used to having to restrain themselves in any way. Certainly, and as a, as a woman, oh my God, I mean, right, I can, I don't, I'm not a woman, but I can imagine there's so much pressure to restrain yourself, right? To not say what you think, to, to oh, smile, baby, right? Like to be pleasant all the time, right? And like to, to have to conform one's behavior to, uh, to, to, to societal expectations is something that white men don't have to do as often. And so I think in order to get past that and and to and to and to actively work to elevate other people re requires personal restraint. It requires introspection and, and and I can say that from the perspective of a of of a cisgender dude also, right? So anyway, my point is that like I think therapy is can be such a powerful tool in understanding how we are not doing that, how we are not, how we are not being as anti-racist as we could be. Well, and I also think, you know, shame is a big thing that everyone carries. And right. that, again, like there's, I guess I have two thoughts about this. One, you have to be able to express that somewhere in order for shame to, you know, sort of for you to work through it. You can't sure. sit in it yourself. Like that's just, you know, uh, sort of the antithesis of what healing from shame looks like. And oftentimes, what people are ashamed of once they say it out loud and they feel accepted or they work through it and they feel, you know, like, oh, this person doesn't hate me and was willing to sit with me and work right. through this with me. It alleviates some of those feelings of shame. Right. And then the person is in theory and, and hopefully in practice, right. A little more free to move through the world. I also think I was just thinking about this as you were talking a way in which therapy can help someone be an anti-racist or an anti-bigot. And I will say this recently happened to me. Um, 
is that I misgendered someone who I care about and I respect deeply. Mm. Um, and I have never done that before. And it was an interesting thing because we were talking about jobs that people had had when they were younger. And I had used the gender term like waiter or waitress. Sure, sure. Um, and as soon as I said it, I felt really bad. And I said something about it. And But one, I'm somewhat of an obsessive person <laughs> and anxious, but I felt terrible about it. And I, I still do. But I also know that it's not that person's responsibility to make me feel better. Right. Like, I have to work through that. I, oh, that's I so powerful. It's so powerful. I apologized. And then it is my responsibility to accept what they had to say about it. And move on, right? Not move right. on, but like then deal with it myself. And I was really grateful that I could go to therapy mm. and discuss it. Um, because sitting in my own, like feeling bad is okay, but it doesn't help anyone along the way. Right. But like, and again, you can't put the responsibility or the onus on other people to make you feel better when you did something wrong, which sure. I think white people do all the time. To all, the color, time. All, all the time. All the time. All the time. That is like, um, I, 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 all the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but so I think in that way, also therapy is a place where you can like sit in your shit. You can think about it critically. You can work through it. And it is actually the therapist's responsibility to hold it for you. That's part of the agreement, right? Mm -hmm. That they are containing some of the feelings. Um, and so I think in that way, it's useful too, that you have a place that you can go where you can work through things um, and you don't have to spill that everywhere else. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is, that, that's a great point. And that's a great way to end this is that, you know, I really think that therapy, it's, it's just amazing to have somebody who is, who knows in some ways more than anyone else in my, about my, about me in my life in some ways, and certainly from some perspectives, um, but who is also not emotionally invested in my life, right? And so I can just say whatever I want to this person, right? And and it is their job to be relatively non-partial. Um, um, of course, they have their ideas and whatever, but like- to They do not, care about you. They care, right, of course. You guys care, you all care. But like not judge, that's the key, right? And, right that is the key. To, and and that is not easy an easy thing to get used to in the beginning with therapy. It's like, I really can trust this person. But knowing, and that's why therapy versus the, the therapeutic, those laws, the confidentially confidential law, like knowing in the back of my head that those laws exist, HIPAA, HIPAA laws exist, um, confidentiality uh, requirements exist. Like this person is bound to hold my secret unless I'm about to hurt somebody or myself, bound, right? Um, mm -hmm. And that is, I think, super, super powerful. So look, uh, Stephanie, you're awesome. You're one of my best friends. This has just been a super fun talk and I think really useful. Thanks for visiting with me today. It was a ton of fun. Thank you. Yes, always. Yeah, and thanks everyone out there in podcast land for tuning in. And remember that if you are listening to this, it's already too late for you to fight back. All right, well, that was a lot of fun. Like I, I say all the time, Stephanie and I go back a really long time and our conversations are pretty fluid and organic. Um, and the topic's really important to me as well. I mean, I, I really... I really think that we all, this goes to the anti-bigotry we talked about at the top of the show, like we all have affirmative duties 
to improve ourselves, right? To be better and not because, and, and we can even just for selfish reasons, because when we are all better, our society is better. And I really do think that, um, that therapy, though, maybe not for everybody, as we discussed, um, can be a really useful tool in that tool chest. Uh, what do you guys think? Well, I think, okay, so therapy in and of itself has a stigma, right? So mm-hmm. you're, you, you need, people need therapy uh, and the ones who need it the worst are the ones who are the least willing to to get it, right? And um, I, I, I love this segment, and I think anybody would be extremely lucky to have Stephanie as a therapist. Yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah. I really enjoyed listening to you guys. Um, I love to talk to Stephanie sometime about her work. I think I used to be in my 20s. I was in, in counseling. I worked as a professional counselor for a while. So I know a little bit. I mean, I'm not certainly not you know, at her level, but I, I know a little bit, uh, about the, the therapy, um, you know, dimension. And I do, and you guys mentioned a few things that are really, really interesting, like, um, you know, how to choose a therapist and, and the idea mm. of the therapist, a human as well. And it is a compatibility issue and that it, it, it really is a process. It's, it's like a relationship. You have to work, you have to form and you have to understand. And, it, and, and also I think it was really cool how you talked about the difference between like, you know, a medical issue, like a physical ailment and, and an emotional one and how they're treated mm. very differently and how that's really a problem because we don't give the same credence to mental health and the same patients and the same you know, justifications. And that means a lot of people don't get help. As far as, does everybody need to be in therapy? I don't know. I, on, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. I would say that I think everybody has to be, uh, find a way to search inward right? Well, whatever it is, and be able to uh, grow and learn, as you said, Christoph, very well earlier, as a person. And, and you have a, we all have a responsibility to that. Right? We have to break through this hyper-individualism and say, this isn't just about me, right? It's not just about my wellness and being. It's about all of us. It's about our society you know, and our communities and our families and our friends. And it's about, and, and, and that leads to, you know, the anti-bigotry, the anti-racism mm-hmm. challenge that we all have, right? And, and yeah. so much in the world is, um, uh, of the cruelty that's in the world is cruelty. the result of trauma, okay? So mm-hmm. people are traumatized as kids. They don't work through it. And that's why I kind of do think everybody needs therapy, and particularly people mm. who have experienced trauma, because they just don't know what a healthy relationship to other people looks like. They seek to recreate whatever, however things were in their household, you know, if, if, if they were, if there was physical or emotional abuse, right. And they just kind of think, well, you know, I got spanked. I turned out fine. Well, no, you didn't. Because if you think that spanking <laughs> right. is okay, you didn't turn out fine. If you think that emotional abuse and traumatizing your kids is okay, then you didn't turn out fine, right? So it's this, it's breaking yeah. this cycle is, is really the, the, the reason for therapy. But in order to break that cycle, to even get into the office with the therapist, um, you have to get rid of the stigma um, against looking into yourself. And the problem is, is all these individualist outlooks, these libertarian outlooks, okay, um, they make it almost shameful to yes. want to self-examine and want to to look into these things. It's like, um, and the, and 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 inevitably in these situations, they will they will call people derogatory names having to do with a feminine, starting with mm-hmm. a P or starting with an F mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, if they want to look into themselves and become kinder, deal with their cruelty, deal with their trauma. Right. That suddenly somehow. 
now becomes associated with the derogatory concept of the feminine. It's a vicious cycle. So true. Something that you mentioned, Christoph, in the show really rung a bell with me that I thought, oh yeah, he's absolutely right. I hadn't thought about it that way. But when you said that it's like you don't want to break through the veneer. You don't want to break through your clothing. I think you use that metaphor, right? You have this mm -hmm. set of clothing that's protecting you and, and making you go through life. And yeah, it might be fucked up, but man, I got a job. I'm struggling through life, but I'm going to make it. And I'm going to die and I'm going to die with all of my angst and all of my anxiety and all my repression, <laughs> but at least I'm going to make it. So don't you go poking right. at that shit, right? I think that th yeah. there's that re uh, reticence. But if you do go poke at that shit and it's difficult and it's hard, it leads to an awakening, right? It leads to a much better, happier life, and you're a better person for others as well. And again, there's that responsibility, right? We can't be assholes. We, we, <laughs> that's essentially it comes down to. If you know you're an asshole, and there's a way to be less of an asshole or a better person, then take it. Totally, totally. And I, I want to sort of just briefly sort of just also connect this to the sort of things we talk about on the show. I mean, we talk about social justice on the show all the time, obviously. Um, that is certainly our bread and butter. But I, I just, you know, you can't force people to get better and be better people. And that's problem. That's why we need policies that we need policies that come from the outside and 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 influence people. Right. I mean, a lot of the reasons why we have this trauma in our lives, I think, as all of us is because of the kind of capitalism we live under. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we live under this unbelievably oppressive, stressful environment where we get maybe an hour or two at the at the end of the day to ourselves, not enough connection and connecting with other people, with our family members and all this sort of thing. So, um, so obviously we need to change those structures. Um, uh, that should be the goal of all of us, but also we can work from the inside. That's working from the outside right. in. We also need to work from the inside out though, Yes, you know, right. And those two things have to meet and that's hard again, because we can create Paul governments can create policy that force people to do things, but we can't force people to be introspective. We can't force people to do that kind of stuff. But what we can do is the kind of stuff that we talk about on the show. And that's why I wanted to do this show, uh, this particular episode was because I, because that kind of work spreading those ideas the ideas that there is two that that's a two-way street it comes from the, comes from the outside in and the inside out i think in the long run can be something positive for society right something and make our world a little bit better uh and at least one individual at a time and at a minimum allow make our our personal lives and and make the the, the lives of the people that we interact with our friends our family our co-workers and ourselves better and happier so that is sort of um why i think one of the reasons why why I think this is this is so yeah. important. And and do you guys have any final thoughts on this or on the entire show? Anything, anything you want to throw yeah. out there? Go for it. I think we should return to the public health model of public policy, right? And uh, mm -hmm. we, you can you can eat healthy, you can take care of yourself, but if you live next to a factory that's spewing smog, you know what? There's nothing you can do about that. That has to be public policy, right? There mm -hmm. are a lot of issues that have to be solved in a collective level. And we know this. I mean, look, the pandemic is a clear example of that. Uh, so we, you're absolutely right, Christoph. Well said. We need both. It has to be. It has to be something we have to change from within. We have to grow and evolve as human beings. And but we also need good, sensible, 
uh, public policies that lead us in that direction, that help us go in that direction. We got to get rid of like the, the Facebook hell that we're in. We have to <laughs> we have to put checks yeah. and limits on the kind of brutality and cruelty that sometimes is expressed in 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 public media, in in, in social mm. in social media, and in you know entertainment. Right. And, and there's many ways of doing that. You know, it, it, it's it's a challenge for all of us. Well, I want to talk. Well said. Well said. I, I want to talk about uh, uh, that. What you were saying, Joe, in terms of the, this, the concept of cancel culture. And I'll, I'll make this brief. But yeah, mm-hmm. basically, we need leadership in society. And everyone who has a microphone or uh, is an influencer who has a has has a megaphone in, in some form or another, whether it's on television, whether it's on social media, whatever it is, has a responsibility. We have to start thinking about it as they have a responsibility. Yes. Because what they say That's is right. going to affect others, just like that factory polluting. Okay. It's going to affect right. others. And if you use your megaphone to encourage people to punch down to call people, you know, names associated with being effeminate and shaming the feminine uh, and telling them to just, you know, just buck up and take it, you know, uh, kind of thing. Stop being a snowflake. Stop being a soy boy. You know, these kinds Mm. of insults, right? They are corrosive to the overall society because they not only make people more cruel, but they make people less interested in looking into themselves. And I think that's Mm, the most tragic aspect of all because this hurts the perpetrators, okay? If there are people who are punching down who are unresolved in their sexuality or whatever, whatever the reason is for their bigotry, okay? They are being harmed by it. They're being injured by this just as much as the ones who are on the receiving end. And it just creates a, 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 a vicious cycle in our society. And we need leaders to step up, step up. Absolutely. Really well said, Sean. Well said, both of you. I really uh, I'm so happy to be back. I'm I'm so pissed off that this is the topic that we have to talk about. Um, But we the three of us and Drew and everyone that's associated with this show, we are out. We are we are beyond allies. We are we are we are aggressively in support of folks. marginalized folks, everybody, the entire society, but marginalized folks um, particular because uh, just because of the nature of our society. Um, so I'm really glad to be back. I'm glad to be able to have this conversation with you all. And um, and I want to remind everybody out there that if you like our show, to make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out our Patreon and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And we also publish new articles weekly at our journal at theradicalsecular.com. I'm Christoph Defoe. Thank you for being here. And remember that wherever you are, you can be radically secular. Radical Secular Podcast is written and produced by Christoph Defoe, Sean Prophet, Joe Okipinti, and Drew Scott. Artwork and design by Tim Stetner. Post-production and theme music by Sean Prophet. Special thanks to our support team, Lindsay Brightman, Jillian Sky Jacobs, and Lori Field Okipinti. 